This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, severe drought. BC residents are being urged to conserve water as the province experiences the worst drought in generations. Plus, after your host asks what ABC Vancouver has accomplished with their supermajority, the party led by a mayor who dresses like a tech bro and shotguns beer, pushes back. And thespians unite, we look at how the fears over automation has led to the shutdown of Hollywood for the first time in six decades. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Earlier today, Bowen Ma, the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness, updated British Columbians on the drought conditions here in our province. In short, drought levels in some parts of uh, BC have been elevated to the most severe. The provincial drought scale goes from zero to five, with five being the worst. Four water basins out of 34 in our province are now at level five. 18 water basins are at level 4. Now, right now in BC, two-thirds of our water basins are level 4 and 5. Minister Ma spoke about the severity of the drought conditions earlier today. Droughts have impacted other regions in the world for years, including India, Australia, and California, and can impact people and communities in different ways, resulting in agricultural, health, economic, and environmental consequences. While it is not uncommon for British Columbians to face droughts, the level and extent of drought that we're witnessing this early on in the season is deeply concerning. Deeply concerning enough, of course, that uh, the minister, along with other officials, are urging British Columbians to conserve water. Take a listen. As our government works with local communities and First Nations, I'm calling on everyone, including businesses, to follow water restrictions set by First Nations or local authorities and take steps to conserve water even above and beyond those restrictions. Every drop counts. That means thinking about small changes that you can make in your daily routine, such as watering lawns sparingly, if at all, taking shorter showers, only doing full loads of dishes or laundry, and turn off the tap when brushing your teeth or shaving. If each person and company makes a few small changes to how they use water, it can have a profound impact. That is Bowen Ma, the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness, who spoke on the issue of a province-wide drought just a couple of hours ago. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Joe. Thanks for having me. So walk me through this. Uh, there isn't a province-wide water restrictions yet, but are we getting there? Yeah, we're getting there for sure. It's inevitable at this point, and it's going to be impacting both personal use and commercial use. We know there are some restrictions already in place, specifically in the oil and gas sector, but there are other restrictions in place for industry. The province is preparing the sector to brace for more of that that there will be limits put on place in terms of water use. And then in terms of individual use, uh, the minister's meeting this afternoon with mayors from across the province, as well as Indigenous leaders, uh, where she will walk through with them the level of drought that we are at, 
municipalities will ultimately be the one to put in restrictions. But I would expect we will hear soon from most municipalities in Metro Vancouver and across the province that there will be uh, restrictions in place uh, for when you can uh, water your garden, uh, when you can water your lawn. But there may also have to be more substantial restrictions in place just about general water use. So Mm -hmm. all of that is coming when asked why not put it in place today, Minister Ma said, well, they learned from previous years that they need to provide more information to the public to brace for what is coming mm-hmm. rather than to react. So today was laying out what is coming. It is around the corner and we need to now brace for it. One of the things that really stood out to me, Jazz, we saw a series of slides today. One of them was about the water level at the Fraser River at Hope. And you look at this chart and you'll see it tonight on the news hour and if you look at where we're at today, July 11, 2023, compared to every other July 11th in the province's recorded history, we've never seen water levels this low, and we are substantially below the lowest ever recorded level. And all of that clearly can lead to these impacts you heard from the minister there, health impacts, fire impacts, societal impacts, you know, drought as different ways in different communities to so to show itself but we are in a really tough situation here this year mm-hmm. uh, before we get to the, the 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 average person here just for a moment but i'm going to talk about business and mostly economic development when you think about water i think of the agriculture industry never mind you know yep. cattle to uh you know of uh, you know harvesting of uh, blueberries and everything else you think we, we can think about here you also got the natural gas industry with the hydraulic fracturing which requires plenty of water as well i mean can we see a Point where some of these industries are going to have to cut back, or, or, or are we going to look at more personal uh, things that we need to focus on? Like, like the minister was saying, you know, shutting off the tap when you're brushing your teeth, because I, you know, this could shut down or temporarily curtail some of some economic activity if, if, if it becomes that bad. If I was in those industries, I would expect that it's coming, Jazz. That it's not going to be a full scale shutdown, but there will be limits imposed upon the use of water. And we've seen incredible growth in terms of technology to help conserve water uh, in the oil and gas sector, in the agriculture sector. But what we're seeing this year in terms of historic lows and historic levels of drought, we are going to see pressure to put on caps in terms of usage. And uh, I don't know when it's coming, but I would anticipate based on what we heard, and there's already been some of that in place for industry, that it would be coming relatively soon. Mm-hmm. And, and the other issue of just sprinkling regulations, I mean, right now you can uh, you know, water your lawn once a week. I mean, are we going to get to a point where it's just going to be a toll, or you're going to be told you can't water your lawn, period? So this is something municipalities are going to have to decide, but there are different tools they can look at here. They could increase the cost of water. So if you use, uh, you know, over a certain amount, uh, you will be charged extra in order to encourage people to change their personal behavior. We may see, as you described, uh, full-out bans in terms of outdoor personal Um, watering of gardens. Uh, We may put in bands in place for those automatic sprinkler systems. Like there are lots of different things. These are things that are hard to enforce. The province is aware of that and they want people to change their behavior. Just a simple idea the minister floated of if you reduce your showering time by a minute per day, you save 19 liters of water. Or if you're running your dishwasher or your washing machine, make sure it's full rather than run a bunch of half loads. Like it's about thinking about personal consumption, if everybody does their part, 
then the province will start seeing a decrease in terms of water usage. But as we've seen in the past, you know, encouraging people to do something is very different than forcing them to. It's serious now. I think this is the message the minister wanted to get across. It is serious and will have serious impacts. And, and, personal behavior needs to change in order to reflect that. Well, it's interesting because at the end of the day, I mean, on a per capita basis, we use a lot more water as Canadians, as British Columbians, and let's say many parts of Asia. And asking people to, you know, uh, spend less time in the shower and, as you say, leaving that water on uh, while you're brushing your teeth. I know you're supposed to be doing a lot of that. A lot of folks don't do that. They just take it for granted that it's always going to be there. And this is probably going to be the first time for a lot of folks. It's going to be a wake-up call for a lot of them. Yeah, and changing behaviors are hard. We live in a place, Jazz, that has some of the most plentiful water in the world. You know, this Mm -hmm. is one of our calling cards. And getting our head wrapped around this is going to be a challenge for a lot of people. And this is not a short-term problem. There's no switch that's going to be turned on. And all of a sudden, the clouds are going to open and the rain's going to fall. We are going to have a dry July and a dry August. Historically, it's dry in this province. The forecast long-term are showing it to continue to be dry. The key will be September and October. If we start getting those big storms, then that can help replenish some of that. But as we know, that comes with challenges too, as we saw with the atmospheric river. So uh, it's going to be a challenge. Climate events are profoundly impacting our environment and, and the way that these weather events impact us. And getting to that sort of individual um Behavioral change is hard. It doesn't happen overnight. So that's why I, I think we'll start seeing municipalities put in restrictions and telling people this is what you have to do rather than say, oh, yeah, you should consider all of these changes uh, in order to help preserve water. It's going to be a long, hot summer, that's for sure. Richard, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Josh. Thank you. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good news today. The 13-day BC port strike uh, seems to be over. Uh, Today we learned there was a tentative deal, a 40-year deal, between the International Longshore and Warehouse Union and the BC Maritime Employers Association. Now, the agreement still has to be ratified uh, with the 7,400 workers uh, that have been on strike since uh, July 1st. Um, And it has impacted uh, the economy here in British Columbia in a significant way. You're talking about 30 ports here in our province, which and of course the largest being the port of Vancouver, that's 63,000 shipping containers that have been stuck on vessels waiting at BC ports to be unloaded. So a significant backlog and hopefully they can get back to work in the next few couple of days uh, as the deal is ratified. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the impact of the strike is Bridget Anderson, CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here, Jack. So uh, first of all, this has got to be great news for you and your members. 
This is very good news uh, for our members and for all businesses and consumers in British Columbia. We are really happy to hear that a tentative deal has been reached. You spoke about the significant impact on our economy. Well, earlier this week, we launched a port shutdown calculator that helped estimate the amount of, uh, of goods that had been disrupted here. We estimated about $9.7 billion in trade disrupted as of this morning when the, the tentative deal was reached. So we are very pleased to see that there is an agreement and hope that gets ratified. But now is the time that industry and government need to work together to ensure that this does not happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your mind, did government just uh, let this go on for too long? Well, you talked about how many container um, ships, shipments are out there. So our estimates on the container ships is about 28 that are sitting in queue, waiting to unload in Vancouver and Prince Rupert. So it is going to take time for that to happen and for operations to resume a normal kind of flow. And so while the the strike itself was about 13 days, you know, there is this ripple or this lag effect. And looking at that, it could take weeks until we see these um, things resume to a more normal operation. And that doesn't actually include the railways. My understanding is that the railways could take even longer to recover. So the impacts of this are going to be wide felt right across the economy in Canada by businesses and consumers. And there was an impact to our international reputation as a stable and secure trading partner. That is going to take time to recover as well. Uh, When you talk about our reputation and, you know, we have that uh, day advantage to to Asia, it's a little shorter to get to Asia from here. But when you look at other jurisdictions, whether it be Seattle, uh, Long Beach, uh, Los Angeles, that that area, the automation is, remains, you know, it, it looms large in regards to the port industry and automation in many industries, quite frankly. I mean, is the port going to have to head in that direction in your mind in regards to introducing some automation to remain competitive? Never mind the labor issue, but just in regards to our reputation and remaining competitive, most importantly, uh, because at the end of the day, you have to compete. You can't just go on reputation. You have to compete. Do you think the port has to look at, uh, you know, at least making some move towards automation? You know, that is why we're saying that government and industry need to work collectively together. We are more dependent than ever on our supply chains, and they have to remain stable and they have to remain secure. And as a port, we have to remain competitive. So as you say, automation is facing every industry and sector. And so there is going to have to be moves to to be able to embrace technology and to ensure that It is part of any business model going forward. I mean, the other thing that we're calling on the federal government is to really take a look at the mechanisms that they have available and the tools in their toolkit, if you will, to address these kinds of disputes that might happen on the waterfront. You know, this was the longest strike that we've had in nearly 40 years on the waterfront. And so we're saying to the federal government, you know, you have to make sure that our supply chains are resilient. So look at the mechanisms to address disputes and also look at what can be done to ensure our supply chains remain resilient. Because we even saw during COVID, Jack, mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of disruption. And then in November of 2021 with the flooding, I mean, we saw the impact of that. And so it just continues to add to the narrative around the fragility of Canada's dependence as a trading partner and our supply chains, which in this competitive environment, we can't afford to have that narrative attached to us. I got about 30 seconds left, and, uh, and I'm coming out of left 
left field here for a second. I just spoke to Richard Zussman on the whole drought situation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we did talk about was impact on industry. Think about water needed for hydraulic fracturing for natural gas extraction in the uh, north uh, northeast of our province. Think about the impact it can have on our agriculture industry as well uh, as some of our products are going to harvest, whether it's uh, you know providing water to cattle, all that sort of thing. Uh, has there been any sort of conversation about droughts and the impact on business either here in Vancouver or broadly in British Columbia? You know, I think it's a broader discussion than just water. It is about resiliency of our infrastructure overall. Mm -hmm. And that can be the ports included. It can be water. I mean, climate change is impacting every industry and sector, not unlike automation. So when when businesses are sitting down and talking, they're looking at resiliency from that broad level, um, which includes climate change, which includes what we're seeing with the hot, dry weather. So there's no way to avoid these kinds of conversations and businesses are at the table to try and find solutions. We need government at the table to help businesses find the solutions too. Bridget, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you about resiliency and climate change in the near future as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff. Let's talk a little bit about uh, getting back to the basics. Now, businesses have to do that. Every once in a while, you got to look at what are your core competencies, what is the what the public is looking for in regards to their tax dollars. Uh, and this is a you know, relatively small story in the grand scheme of things, but I think it's an important one. Now, the city of Port Coquitlam um, had a, spent three days uh, and sent crews out to target different zones in the city uh, to clean up public spaces. You know, simple little things like just garbage and junk. And what, what did they do at the end of those three days? Well, they completed their uh, Clean City Blitz and what they collected was three tons of litter. 86 kilometers were cleaned with a sweeper. Uh, 122 gra- uh, graffiti tags were removed uh, and 14 uh, illegal dumping sites were cleaned and thousands of cigarettes butts were collected as well. well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the cleaning blitz in Port Coquitlam and I think partially a little bit I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, City Hall and uh, going back to the uh, basics a little bit is, uh, of course, joining us is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Brad, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jazz. So what uh, uh, got you inspired to say, let's have a cleaning blitz? I know municipalities do that. Usually you have, uh, you know, staff, uh, members of City Hall doing that. What was the reasoning behind that? Was there just an impetus to say, look, we have to start cleaning this place up? It was looking a little dirty? Well, it's part of, as you said, the ongoing work that always happens. But we had an incredibly successful pothole blitz that we did just after uh, the cold winter months when potholes really need to uh, be attended to. And we filled uh, several hundred potholes in a couple of days in Port Coquitlam. And that was so well received by the public. It really got me thinking, okay, can we take this concept of where in addition to our ongoing work, we blitz our entire community and just get stuff done. And I thought, well, you know what? The summer months are upon us. People are out in the in our parks and our playgrounds, and you can just see the city's kind of alive and busy. And I said to our staff, hey, is it possible to take the same concept and do a cleaning blitz? And they came back with uh, what it would take to do it, and uh, we gave it the green light. And I mean, I'm just incredibly proud of the work that our crews did and the results certainly speak for themselves. So this was, these were city crews. You didn't have to have sort of volunteers come in from the community. No, it was city crews. And we do have a really robust uh, uh, volunteer uh, community as well that, you know, often does this type of work. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is also a core municipal responsibility. And I think that 
you know, that, that is really worth underscoring. This is the type of thing people send their tax dollars to City Hall for. And, you know, it's often not prioritized, I think, in the way it should be. So, yes, you know, it's great when conscientious citizens help us out, and, and I appreciate that, and I encourage that. But it shouldn't just be up to, you know, our citizens. The city has a responsibility here as well. And, and again, this is what people pay for. Yeah. So we should be delivering it. I hear that in Vancouver. I hear occasionally about Surrey as well. And those are big communities. And each community is a little different. I don't mean to pick on them. But, you know, you hear that sometimes cities uh, take on other responsibilities, whether there are, um, you know, issues where things are downloaded from higher levels of government. And so they, the municipality takes over some of those responsibilities. In the case of Vancouver, um, you know, nearly $200 million is going towards housing and daycare. Very important issues. And I, I don't want to minimize that. Uh, but when you're looking at, you know, you've just added a 10.7% property tax increase, which you've, you know, handed over to taxpayers, they've had to pay it. And when your budget outlook looks at a 9% property tax increase, increase every year for the next five years uh, and you end up cutting somewhere and one of the places you look for savings is cleanup in, in some cases in your mind why do you think some cities end up you know I know there's downsizing but why do they pick up some of these responsibilities when it's not part of their core core services that they're supposed to be providing why does that happen well I think they feel the pressure because uh, they are things that community members are concerned about and and i can appreciate that i think it largely comes from a good place but you you know who benefits the most when they do that is those other levels of government Mm -hmm. maybe you know the provincial government the federal government need to feel the heat more from residents about them not meeting their obligations you know certainly like when it snows in Port Coquitlam, we got to do a good job of taking care of that and if we aren't Nobody's calling the MLA to complain. <laughs> They're calling the mayor. Yeah. Um, and, and, and likewise, you know, when it comes to these issues that are truly provincial and federal responsibilities, if a city council steps in and takes responsibility, you're really letting the province and the federal government off the hook. And they're all too happy to let you step in and fund those things. And you're right. Something has to give. Mm-hmm. And usually what it, it is, is those core services that are actually really important and fundamental to the well-being of a community. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Vancouver, once again, I don't want to pick on uh, Vancouver because Sarah Kirby Young is coming in. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, my conversation with Francis Bueller the other day where I had asked them about, you know, you're eight or nine months in now. Uh, you have a supermajority. What have you done beyond uh, the, the mayor wanting to encourage everybody to come to Vancouver? It's a fun city uh, and he's drinking beer, all that kind of stuff. But I also think a supermajority is a terrible thing to waste. So she's going to come in and we're going to have that conversation. So I don't want to think I'm picking on Vancouver. But uh, in regards to the broader issue here um, in regards to the taxation levels. Do you think we're at that point where something has to give with municipalities? I know in a post-COVID environment, there have been significant property tax increases, not so much in your community, but others, that something has to give somewhere along the way that this may actually force governments to think, wait a minute here, what are our core services that we provide and the things that we can't? Let's start cutting back on some of those things because pre-COVID, perhaps we had the dollars, but certainly post-COVID, it doesn't look like the dollars are there. Well, I really think it comes down to a matter of prioritization. I, I mean, look, there, there's no limit of good ideas and ways to spend money out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't get blood from a stone. I mean, people are really struggling financially. 
And I think we have to be incredibly sensitive uh, to cost escalation and pressures on families. And so what does that mean? That means really digging down and and focusing what is going to be most impactful to the most number of people, prioritizing that and making sure we're meeting our, our basic obligations. And, you know, I, I think they're trying to right the ship in Vancouver in, in many ways, but, you know, during the, the previous council, for instance, I mean, they gave the green light to this idea that Vancouver taxpayers were going to pay for a lawsuit against big oil. Uh, you know, like, I mean, how in the world do you, do you justify that when so many of your other obligations are not being met? I mean, it, it is, it is, was truly just a, you know, <laughs> this sort of activist, you know, uh, symbolic act, but it was going to cost taxpayers in Vancouver, I think, about eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I just recently asked the city councilor about the uh, budget uh, process they're going through now and the potential nine percent increase, and one of them uh, was serious, and I can't believe they went there. So they, perhaps they may need to revisit the parking tax. You know, one where you pay to park in the street that you've already paid for that one. Yeah. So. Well, and I, I will say just like there is certainly a tie-in and connection here to property taxes. I mean. I'm very proud of the fact in Port Coquitlam, because of our focus on those core services uh, and very much meeting our responsibilities and obligations, we, you know, have the lowest property taxes in the entire lower mainland now. And our property tax increase over the last couple of years has been around uh, 2%. We had a 0% uh, during the COVID years, uh, and we had a 0.8%. Um, you know, and services are not suffering in Port Coquitlam because of it. We're building new amenities. We mm-hmm. build a fantastic new community center. I, I, again, community and recreation centers are often something that get overlooked. But that's another core municipal responsibility. So it, it can be done. But if, if you're going to you know stretch yourself very thin, if you're going to take on uh, these you know complicated and large complex societal issues and try and solve them off the backs of property taxes um it's just you're setting yourself up for failure because property taxes were never intended to be used to solve homelessness and you could never raise enough money to solve homelessness off of property taxes no but if you go down that road you're going to get those 10 percent a year increases 12 percent a year increases uh and you're going to create a lot of stress on regular middle-class people. That's for sure. Brad, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me, Jazz. Now, earlier this week uh, on this program, we talked a little bit about a video that surfaced uh, over the weekend on social media of uh, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim shotgunning a beer. Uh, We had Francis Beulah from the Globe and Mail on the show. We talked a little bit about the incident. And look, it doesn't bother me. It's part of public life, and when you're called, sometimes a shotgun, a beer, or whatever it is at an event, it happens, not a big deal. But I thought it was an opportunity for us to talk about uh, uh, some bigger issues, which is um, what has the present ABC Council been able to achieve uh, in its first year? Now, year will be October when they were first elected. They were sworn in in November, so the year isn't up. Lots of time, but I've also believed that in these, in, in moment, when it comes to government, uh, you're 
first couple of years, you are, have the opportunity to do big things. And after that, you start eyeing the next election. You can get a bit um, uh, risk averse. So in, in my world, I always believe a majority, never mind a supermajority, is a terrible thing to waste. Now, here's Francis Beulah's assessment so far of the early days of ABC. We're not seeing visible progress, and we're not seeing a big policy move. And so it tends, it's tending to be a bit performative. We're showing that we're a jolly, happy city and we care about things. But what's actually being done, it's, it's not that clear. That was uh, Global Mail's Francis Beale. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about what ABC has done and accomplished uh, is Sarah Kirby-Young, ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Uh, good afternoon, Sarah. Hi, Jess. How are you? I'm good. I thought I, I thought I was going to get a lecture from you. By, by all means, if you want to give me one, go ahead. But I, I thought it was a legitimate no, question. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to have a chance to come on and talk about what we actually are doing. And I so, think that uh, I haven't seen Francis at our council meetings lately, and they've been a lot shorter and more efficient than they used to be. So maybe <laughs> she's missing some of the good things that I'm going to tell you about. Okay. Well, first and foremost, you promised 100 police officers, 100 mental health workers. You're well on your way uh, to providing that. I'm not going to debate you on that issue. Uh, well, on that, on that note, because a lot of people do ask, what's the status of that? And uh, VPD is actually looking to hire 175. We committed to 100 new uh, to right size uh, the police force. We also committed to fully funding the fire department um, plus they have obviously retirements and regular attrition and they have hired 86 as of today i think there's 46 recruits currently at the academy right now so we are well on the way there and i think what's important to note too is that the actual interest in applying to the vpd um, when they were having challenges last term when you had a mayor and council that quite honestly didn't believe in the police department um, the actual amount of applications and interest has gone way up all right. Well, um, and so I think that that's a really positive outcome. So well, that not, might we're be not. I'm not. Your listeners don't. Know I'm. That. I'm not going to disagree with that. We've talked about that. But let's talk about other things. I'm just going to throw throw a few things out. Uh, the decampment okay. issue uh, in the downtown east side. Have, and I'm going to throw a few of them out, and you can pick the ones you want to talk about. Have the development application process been streamlined? How about new park spaces? It may be early, but I'm going to bring it up as well. What will the new bike lane in Stanley Park look like if this one is being taken out? Where are labor negotiations on this issue? And uh, as we saw today, huge drought conditions. Are we really going to be running fountains in the summer? So you pick the ones you want to focus on and you let me know. Okay, well, let's let's take the dev- development process because that's a really big one and that's yep. something we've talked about a lot um, and we've been spending a lot of time on. And so let me tell you some of the things that we have done and some of the things that we said no to to actually make it simpler. So some of the things that we said no to is that uh, last term the council put in a policy inquiry process. It was well-intentioned to say, can we give some applicants some early feedback before they have to go through a lengthy and expensive rezoning process? And what we found is that that actually backfired and was the opposite of what the intention was. And it ended up adding length and complexity to the process. And so we said, take it out. Staff came to us, said, okay, here's how we can fix it. We said, why try to fix something that's not working? Let's just not do it. I'll give you another example. Um, We had some councillors that tried to come back with putting in a new pace of change policy to slow down development on the Broadway plan. And again, we said, no, let's not do that because we already have a natural pace of change because our development processes are not fast enough. Um, So there's a couple of examples. Yesterday on temporary modular housing, we had some councillors in a motion who wanted to perpetuate the status quo of this temporary housing with a small number of units on valuable city-owned land. And we said, no. Let's go bigger and bolder, uh, and these leases, people are going to be guaranteed homes, but we actually need to intensify these sites so we can probably quadruple the number of homes to provide permanent 
homeless for people, not temporary. So I would say that that's an example where we're not afraid to take these issues on uh, mm-hmm. and to take a stand. And then on the development process in general, we're starting to see some of the fruits of, of our labors from the implementation of digital permitting. There's a lot of work to do. Um, I'm going to be very honest, um, but we are seeing for example, full digitization of application um, process. Just yesterday at Council, we took uh, approval to a rainwater management process, which was for some reason attached to the rezoning process. It was taking 56 weeks to get that. We thought that's ridiculous, stripped it out. Mm-hmm. That's now part of the development process. That's into three weeks. So it's difficult to communicate around a lot of this work that's happening, um, but we're just rolling up our sleeves and trying to do it. Uh, a quick question. Do you regret the 10.7% property tax increase? Because one would argue that's not what you were elected on. And, pre- and, and even if there was going to be a larger property tax increase like other municipalities had to deal with, perhaps they wanted you and uh, your mayor, your council to at least find savings. So at least that uh, pro- increase may have been only single digits rather than double digits. Do you regret the 10.7% property tax increase? Uh, we regret when we're putting stress on people and they're already challenged with uh, sort of the, just affordability issues and the economics of it. Um, I think for us that was uh, that was not an easy decision to make, uh, but we didn't have enough time to delve into the budget to but, find but, the savings that we wanted. What but I couldn't you say, push though, back? Could we, you not push back on civil servants and say, hey, defer some of these programs, uh, uh, cancel some if we can, push, kick the down, kick some of these programs down uh, down the road a little bit? Like you, you, 10.7 is still significant. You I mean you couldn't have taken a point or two off or three or four percent? I, I I didn't see. And maybe I'm wrong here, but I didn't see a real effort on the part of the council to say, let's reduce this at the very least, because 10.7% is ridiculous as a property tax increase. It's a significant increase, and I would say two things to that. Is one, we formed the budget task force, so that, and we committed to saying we, those are, the increases are not sustainable. We can't continue to have them, and they're doing their work. We're going to get their information back in the fall, um, and we're committed to doing that. The second thing that I'll say, too, is that it wasn't just a status quo budget. We also reinvested back in stuff that had been cut for years that mattered to people. And it was snow removal, cleaning of streets, additional sanitation, the things that people said, I don't understand why my taxes are going up and I'm not seeing the services and the value for money. Um, And so we did put money into those areas that we felt were really important. But you're right, we need to get to a lower tax level and we're working on that. Okay. Uh, Now the uh, the budget uh, process that you're in now looking at longer term 9% property tax increase every year for the next five years. Uh, How do you plan to fix that or at least deal with it so those increases are not uh, uh, significant? And as I think you said on this program, about 15% of that, of of spending at the city is housing and and daycare, which is not the core business of cities. And I'm not saying shut everything down. I'm not a cold person. But at the same time, you do, as Brad West said earlier today on this show, but when you take up those costs, you let the provincial and federal government off the hook when you do so with the allowing to get away with the downloading where are you where will you find the savings to make sure vancouverites will not be hit with a nine percent property tax increase so a big part of that has been re-establishing really positive relationships with the province and the federal governments and we saw for example with the decamp of the downtown east side we've got great partners uh, with jvb um, and the provincial folks in terms of stepping up and saying this is some, a bigger problem than vancouver can solve alone um, and they're coming in and delivering the housing. I think in terms of right-sizing, the reason that we know how much Vancouver is spending is because I asked to quantify that. That's why we're having 
that public discussion and the city of Vancouver can contribute to housing by making it faster. We can provide sites for social nonprofit housing, um, but we need to invest back in our own infrastructure. So we don't have the side of the roof falling off the aquatic center. People have the community centers and the parks that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the conversations that have been happening and that will allow us to shift some of those dollars that previously had been spent into the things that people want to see in their community um, and trying to, but to, you know, have, make sure that we've got reasonable investment in infrastructure, uh-huh. um, but also a reasonable capital budget. Uh, final question to you. Uh, do you think that your party needs to do a better job at least articulating some of this? Because there, there have been perceptions and I've heard from your own supporters that look, I expected more. I'm not seeing much in regards to getting things done, big, bold things that need to happen and doing them early in your mandate. They're not seeing enough of that. A lot of performative stuff, as uh, Francis Bula said, small stuff, uh, but not the big stuff that needs to happen. I think that what we're doing is focusing on what people asked us to, which is really taking care of the city. Yes, I think communication is always important, which is why I'm glad you asked me on to talk about it. Uh, but, you know, when Francis talked about big housing moves, we're moving ahead with putting the six lots uh, onto single-family zones across the city. Nine single-family uh, zones will be condensed, collapsed back into one. Um, we've gone as far as naming it already in terms of residential inclusive. That will be in place in the fall. That's going through... Uh, the process that needs to happen. So these are big moves in housing. But yeah, absolutely. I think that the more we can get out, you want to have us back on the show, we'll be happy to do a weekly segment and tell you everything that we are actually moving forward. Nope. I think we'd be happy to let people know. Yeah, and we look forward to having you on. I promise you that. And I know the mayor is scheduled to be on of starting in September once a month, coming on the show to take questions from me and from the audience as well. So I do appreciate that. Thank you for your time today, Sarah. And I promise you we, we will be definitely having you back on the show to talk about some of these things as well. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Fantastic. Have a great day. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the show. And earlier today, uh, Bowen Ma, the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness, uh, updated British Columbians on the drought conditions in BC. Now, drought levels in some parts of the province have been elevated to the most severe. Now, in this province, uh, the drought scale goes from zero to five, with five being the worst. So four water basins out of 34 in our province are at a level five. 18 water basins are at a level four. So right now, two-thirds of our water basins are at level four, or, or, or uh, level five. Now, we are expecting, according to Richard Zussman from Global BC, uh, the water conservation measure will probably be announced uh, in the weeks ahead for our province. Now, it's not nothing new here in Metro Vancouver. Now, people with lawns uh, can only water them once a week between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. We've had annual restrictions uh, here in the Lower Mainland since 1993 when um, the then, I guess not Metro Vancouver Board, but GVRD uh, introduced a 10-week lawn sprinkling ban and that was put in place, like I said, in 1993. And every year it has been announced on and on and on. This year it's actually only once a week. Well, our next guest says that Vancouver needs more than conservation measures to solve its future water needs. Uh, Despite our continued population growth and climate 
climate change, Metro Vancouver's water district has taken only baby steps towards expanding its storage and supply capacity. Downing Manor to talk a little bit about conservation in Metro Vancouver is Daphne Rowan, columnist for the Vancouver Sun. Daphne, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, before we get to the issue of reservoirs here in Metro Vancouver, let's talk a little bit about the news of the day, and that's, of course, uh, Bowen Ma, the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness, uh, telling British Columbians today that four out of 34 water basins are at a level five, the worst level uh, they can be at, and 18 uh, water basins in this province are at a level four. Uh, what's that tell you? Well, it tells me that um, anyone who thinks that climate change isn't happening um, better give their head a shake. I mean, this is the, the, the drought that's going on in British Columbia mirrors what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, certainly if you look at um, what has happened in California and the, and the southern United States, that's been a problem. Uh, some people were, were, of course, after California did get a, a two wet years, and so their reservoirs came back up again. But what we're talking about is is that this may not be, you know, the, this may not be the end of times because the, this year these water basins happen to be at these drought levels, but it does suggest that um, we need to get used to the idea that these drought levels are going to be something that's happening more and more and more often. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the situation closer to home, which of course here is Metro Vancouver. I recall you uh, wrote a column uh, in late April talking about uh, continued population growth and uh, the conservation um, measures announced by Metro Vancouver um, broadly. What are the challenges here in the Lower Mainland when it comes to water uh, conservation? Well, we do have a bit of a drought problem too. So um, the glaciers are melting. Um, The last glacier in the region is going to be gone by 2043. Um, So... We are going to have less of that kind of water to rely on. We know that um, the winter, we, we are getting atmospheric rivers, which floods us, um, but, but we're not, the consistency of rainfall is not like it used to be. And at the same time that the consistency of rainfall is not what it used to be, um, we have not expanded our reservoirs to contain that uh, water for when we need it in the summertime. We haven't expanded those reservoirs in a very long time even though we keep adding more and more and more and more people. Mm -hmm. Why haven't we made the big decision? I know cost obviously is going to be one of the big impediments, but these are just the basics of infrastructure. You have to continue to expand and build. What has been the hesitation? Well, one of the hesitations is that that, um, North Americans and Canadians, key among them, we're the biggest water users in the world. And so they put a heavy focus on conserving water, um, I think it's we, we, each of us consume something like 44 liters a day. I think that's what the number is. And um, so what they've, what they've tried to do is convince us not to take sh- such long showers. And they've tried to convince us that, that the water that, that is in the reservoirs that then goes through the treatment plant, that we should quit using that to hose down driveways, to do window washing and, you know, power washing buildings and power washing concrete and... and um, and so that has worked, and, and it worked really well in the beginning because uh, a lot of people didn't have low-flow toilets and that sort of thing. But we're getting really close to the point where we've kind of conserved almost as much as we can, given the water restrictions that are on right now in terms of watering lawns. So we're getting really close to the point where I'm not quite sure 
that we're going to be able to continue conserving. Um, the, the water usage is only dropping now by about 2%. In the beginning, it dropped by something like 20% in the first couple of years. Prior to the news break, uh, Daphne, uh, we had talked about uh, um, usage of water here uh, in our city. Now, even though per capita usage uh, continued to drop, even in 2022, that rate has slowed to 2% from 20% less than a decade earlier when people were only uh, starting to install low-flow toilets and water-saving um, shower heads. Moving forward, though, is there any conversation in regards to actually spending the dollars uh, to expand the reservoir? Oh, yeah, it's on the books. I mean, we, they are supposed to be expanding the reservoir in Coquitlam, but they keep pushing it backwards. It keeps going further and further back in time. And um, it's not really clear why it's been delayed. Um, it was supposed to be, it was supposed to, I think, almost to be starting, um, at least in the design work, it was supposed to by now, but it's been pushed back. And at this point... Um, it hasn't even gone to the design phase yet. And, what's, and what's it's the... not clear why that is. Um, they, there is this heavy reliance on conservation. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you're a cynic, um, I think it's fair to say that the people that run Metro, which is, you know, individual, these, these councillors and mayors from all of the little, from the little municipalities as well as the big ones, um, what they're concerned about is the cost and right now we have this horrific cost um, associated with the wastewater treatment plant in North Vancouver, hmm. and that is so. I mean, that that's I, I don't. It's at least doubled in price, and it's been you know been the subject of heavy litigation. And I think there um, there is some concern that that the the taxpayers, the ratepayers in Metro Vancouver, will simply revolt if they add too much more on in terms of um, cost. Uh, it, it, it's interesting to me that, uh, so they're still pushing the conservation issue, which is we used to be able to uh, at least to water our lawns twice a week uh, for brief periods of time. Now we're down to uh, t- to once a week. Um, is this going to require, a, I guess, the provincial government stepping in in the sense of just providing some dollars to, to get this done? Because every year we wait, it's, it's that much longer to, to fully plan it out, a business plan that's needed, than the construction phase that's needed. It's not something that can be built right away and quickly. Um, is this going to require a senior level of government getting involved? Um, I think it requires, I think it does require that. Um, th- these are very heavy costs. And, um, but, you know, these are heavy costs that are balanced for, for senior levels of government against health care. And um, arguably, health care is reliant on having a good source of drinking water, as we've seen in innumerable First Nations, where they have no potable water. But I think in Metro Vancouver, it's, it's more complicated than simply um, increasing the reservoirs so that we can continue um, watering lawns with chlorine-treated water. I mean, what... What they're also talking about is, is having an alternate water supply so that there would be a, a supply of what they, I think they call it gray water. So this would be rainwater that runs off, and it's stored in a separate place so that when you wanted to uh, water your lawn, you would be watering it with, with rainwater, perhaps. And, it, and it, you know, sort of conserving some of that water separate from what's, what's in the water reservoirs that's going to go through the, the water treatment plant so that you can drink it when it comes out. And, I mean, this is quite common there. I mean, there, there, uh, there are some places where they, they simply, you know, hand people water. Like, if you want a water barrel, a rainwater barrel, you can go to your municipality and they'll give you one. 
So there are some of those things that I think we need to be thinking about as well. Mm-hmm. And in there are um, there are some other there's some other issues about what we can do to cool the, for cooling and so on. I mean, uh, um, we could we could be doing other things for cooling. We're we're in some places they have um, rooftop gardens, which are which are good for um, also cooling the city and. And, but, of course, you have to water those as well. But, again, if we can find these alternate water sources that are perhaps not the highly treated stuff that costs so much money, mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's a solution as well. But, you know, we were just talking about uh, this issue today uh, in our newsroom here, and, you know, we were talking about, you know, uh, uh, shorter showers, and some people like taking longer showers. Uh, do you think we have within this developed nation, a first world nation, whatever we used to call it, do you think it's within us to, to conserve as much as that is needed? I and mean, we still, even with conservation, probably consume more per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, do you think we can conserve more as, as individuals or do you think there's a, actually a limit here? It seems like, based on what we're seeing in re- returns of 2%, you were saying, we've gone as far as we possibly can. Somewhere along the way, I'm not sure people are willing to take shorter showers or perhaps uh, not have the water run when they're washing dishes, all those types of things? Well, I think I do think there's always, we can always do little bits more, right? I, I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I used to let the water run when I brushed my teeth. Well, I haven't done that for years, right? Mm-hmm. But the, pro- the other problem is, is that our population by 2050 will have grown from 2.5 million to 3.5 million. Mm-hmm. And so you and I can take shorter showers, but what about those other million people that are coming? Right? Yeah. Are they gonna? What? They they don't get to have a shower? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're we're kind of we're kind of getting to that point, right? And and so as as in Vancouver alone, I mean, just think about. So Sanok is they're talking about six thousand homes. So let's say roughly twelve thousand people. Um, Jericho is going to be roughly the same um and we've got oak ridge coming on i mean that's just vancouver and yet we talk about we talk about having to build all this housing and yet nobody's linking up all this housing we're supposed to be building nobody's saying okay if we're going to build all this housing then let's also like where where are the development fees or where is the money where's the money coming from to have this really key infrastructure. I mean, we always talk about we talk about these other sort of things like oh, we need parks and we mm-hmm. need, but we also need water, and we just don't have a. It, it doesn't seems to me that given given the way the region is is organized politically, um, there's no way to say to developers, well, you got to you got to kick money into the. You have to you have to also help pay for the water. And yes, they have water servicing agreements and so on, but before. Before a municipality starts approving, you know, thirteen thirteen thousand new homes somewhere, mm-hmm. they need to think about whether the water, whether there's going to be water to supply to them, yeah, and whether there's going to be sewage because that's the other big one, yeah, which no, we haven't really talked about very much either. We'll save that for another segment, but you're absolutely right. I recall years ago when they first started talking about sprinkler regulations, and former Vancouver Sun columnist Pete McMartin was just shocked that I remember some column about in a rainforest water conversation conservation. Are you are you for real? And here we are. Uh, talking about water supply and, and conservation and further conservation as well. And just for a, a quick plug for you, you've got another column coming out as well on, on the issue of water. I uh, do. 
I do. I'm writing it today. I'm not sure when it will run, but oh. I'm writing it today. But because I, you know that the 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 real thing is here that this is climate change, and we've known about it and known about it and known about it, but nobody wanted to. Nobody wants to pay the money. Yeah, we're paying for it now. That's for sure. Thank you so much, Daphne. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Jazz. Well, Hollywood uh, actors are officially headed to the picket line. They've been unable to reach a deal with producers, members of the Screen Actors Guild of America, American Federation of Television Radio Artists as well, would join up with more than 11,000 already striking film and television writers starting at midnight. It is a significant event uh, in Hollywood, the first time in nearly six decades uh, that uh, the actors have walked out. Uh, it's also happening at a time when the industry is going through significant technical challenges and, of course, structural challenges as well. When news of the strike broke, uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger spoke uh, on the issue to CNBC. Take a listen. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing. There's huge collateral damage in the industry to people who are, you know, who are support services. I could go on and on. It is going to be incredibly significant. Roger P. Henson, who is an actress, uh, spoke on the Screen Actors Guild strike as well. Take a listen. Greed is going to be the end of humanity. That's what's going to kill us all, you know. And... The things that the actors are asking for is common sense. You can't use my likeness and get paid and I don't see anything. That is just highway robbery. And for any studio to think that that's fair, it's beyond. Like, I don't even understand. Are you human? Do you care about the livelihood of of artists? That is actress Traji P. Henson. Of course, they're talking about uh, automation, um, but there are many other challenges uh, bef- uh, before actors and writers as well as the industry uh, and the entertainment industry go through significant structural challenges. So joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist and, of course, a CKNW contributor. Rick, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jazz. Always a pleasure. Well, we've been hearing lots about the writer strike and, and what, it'll, what impact it's going to have on Hollywood. Now you have the Screen, Screen Actors Guild uh, which represents 160,000 television movie actors. Uh, uh, what do you see happening moving forward here with writers and uh, potentially uh, actors, uh, you know, uh, out on strike? Yeah, I don't see anything very good for the industry, and I don't see anything very good for the viewer. Um, this is a real challenge, you know. As uh, with SAG AFTRA, act, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, going out as well and supporting the writers' issues. Um, not only will we have no new content uh, because the writers haven't been writing it, but we won't have anybody to perform even if there was new content. And um, I, you know, I listened to a clip with Matt Damon earlier today saying, look, it's our job to be supportive and to work within the confines of a contract. And if we don't have a contract that works, whether it's us or whether it's the writers, then we shouldn't be going ahead. It's usury, and it's not right, and it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a pretty good comment on his part. And I see this, I'm not much of a prognosticator, but I see this lasting a long time, Jazz. I think it's going to be a long, hot summer <laughs> with a lot of... With a lot, a lot of uh, new television not happening. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's interesting because I think it's one of those inflection points for the entertainment industry uh, when you look at dollars. Yes, there's always disputes between workers and management over pay, 
but with the entertainment industry, they had they had something called residuals, which are kind of like royalties. If you worked on a show and it became a hit, well, it could air 20 years later. You're still going to be paid royalties or residuals every time it airs as a repeat on, on variety of networks. A lot of that is going away because someone like Netflix comes along, just buys the series, gives you your profit up front, but there's no residuals coming uh, for actors over the long term. And in many ways, those long-term residuals help actors and even production companies uh, you know, build on new content for the present and future while their bills are being paid by those residuals. And now with those going away, one would argue that's a huge, huge systemic change in the industry and not one that's working in favor of actors or writers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, what you're saying, Jazz, is that the business model uh, in that world is changing and has changed, and it may become unsustainable. Uh, in the simpler world, uh, pre-streaming, uh, and even post-streaming for a time, a television series, and let's just pick, uh, let's just pick one at random, uh, let, let's say uh, Cheers, a show like Cheers, uh, they would strive to get 100 episodes in the can. Once they had 100 episodes, the producers now had the rights to those series revert to them, and they could then shop it around, and these shows could run in strips you know, at 4.30, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the afternoon on a myriad of stations, and they would all get paid. Everybody would get paid, and that's where the money was. In fact, most television series operate at a loss initially, uh, and the hope is that they'll get to that 100-episode milestone and be able to syndicate and make money for everybody. Well, as you pointed out, that's really gone. Uh, the Netflix organizations of the world come in, they swoop up with these series, they buy all the rights, and they provide a payout to the writers, to the directors, the producers, and the actors, but then they have carte blanche uh, worldwide as to how to shop these things around, worldwide. So it's no longer just uh, watching something at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the evening, like Seinfeld reruns, this is now a worldwide phenomenon, and it becomes a huge business. And the people who created all of this stuff no longer get paid. Now, one could say, look, uh, an artist creates a portrait, they get paid for the portrait, and they don't get paid every time somebody looks at it in a museum. They got paid once, it's a one-and-done thing. Well, so it should be like that with a television business. It's not, because everybody has to make a living, and it's a long-reaching thing. It takes years to get into a profitable situation. In the meantime, people have to work. So um, actors, for example, get other gigs. Uh, sometimes they can't wait for the new gig or a re repeat of the gig, a renewal of the gig that they had. And um, that's why we see such changes in cast. And we see shows that we like just disappearing, Jazz. They yeah. just go away. Yeah, and it's the other thing I think we sometimes forget is that when you look at television in the 90s and even the early aughts, you would have a full season of 20, 24 episodes. Uh, you know, the last two series uh, I've been watching has been have been uh, Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime and Hijack on Apple Apple TV, and they're now still playing and they're releasing a couple of episodes every week or so. But those series generally run eight episodes, maybe six, and maybe maybe ten. But that's it. So the seasons are that's also it. compressed now, aren't they? They're compressed, and the time during which these things are popular is also compressed. So we hear a lot about Jack Ryan, because it's still running right now, and Hijack, which I'm really enjoying, and has two episodes left to go. I'd much rather see them streaming all at once rather than have to wait week after week. Mm -hmm. uh, however, 
um, the time period during which we talk about those is compressed. So we may talk about hijack for two or three or four weeks. We may talk about Jack Ryan for two or three or four weeks. Word of mouth gets around. But when the show's finished, we stop talking about it, mm-hmm. and it all goes away. Yeah. And those actors, those writers, those performers, those uh, people that worked on this thing now have to find another gig, and it can take a year or two before that thing shows up on television. And now, going back to our opening situation, with the Screen Actors Guild going out along with the writers, there will be no new content, and even if there were, there'll be nobody to perform in it. Mm-hmm. So here's what you can watch for. You can wait to see... Want more content on such outfits as Netflix and Amazon Prime that come from places like Sweden and Israel and other countries in the world. They'll be subtitled, they'll be dubbed, and there's some really good programming out there. There's no question about it from other countries. Uh, and the next move will be, uh, is there going to be some kind of job action to prevent that from happening? Mm-hmm. We shall see, Jazz. The other thing I find interesting is um, if you look at the port strike, which um, as we speak today, there's a tentative agreement. But one of the issues that uh, they were focusing on was automation. Many ports around the world don't hire a lot of people because you can literally, with machines, uh, take cargo off a vessel and put it on a vessel as well. So there's less need for longshoremen. And so the port industry is dealing with automation, but so is Hollywood in a different way in the sense that with artificial intelligence, one could argue you could actually replace actors with uh, with the new technology. Now, it's not just animation, but it's, uh, it's I guess, technology that can maybe even look like a, you know, you create a character that would look like a Tom Cruise or or a leading man number one, and I guess the number two, the other one, which I find fascinating, is the ability for AI to write a sitcom. Now, we're not at that stage where it's doing that yet, but you can imagine technology in two years and five years uh, being able to produce at least something decent. Uh, and I know the industry itself, the management side, the, the Disney's and Netflix don't want to touch that right now because I don't think they know where the technology's going, but that has to be a clear existential challenge for writers and in this case for actors as well. Yeah, and it's the way of the world. You're absolutely right. It is the way of the world. Um, for example, at one time, 120 years ago, in this country and in the United States and much of Europe, one of the leading bleeding industries was the buggy whip manufacturing business <laughs> because everybody had a buggy pulled by a horse and you had to have a whip. And uh, that just seemed like the best kind of business to be in because who's ever going to be able to get a horse to move without a whip? Well, we know that there are no buggy whip manufacturers anymore today. And things have moved on. And we will look back, I think, Jazz, at today's world from a place maybe not too far down the road, as you say, maybe 10 years down the road, and look back and say, remember when people wrote all the situation comedies? Now, they're all written using uh, what the producers call a Bible, which uh, talks about uh, how all of the characters in this thing are supposed to act, and the artificial intelligence puts together in a few minutes Uh, entire series and i think that will be happening for sure Mm -hmm. now will it move everybody out i don't know but i do think we cannot ignore the fact that uh, technology changes time marches on and the world moves on as well jazz yeah i wish these uh, actors and writers all the best but boy it's tough when you're up against the disney's and the netflix's and and many other companies who i think view this as one of those inflection points in technology and in the industry, and it's going to be a tough one uh, for those who create that uh, content uh, that we all love watching, that's for sure. So it's going to be very interesting to watch uh, how things uh, transpire over the next uh, weeks and hopefully not months, but 
uh, I think I think you're right. I think this is going to be a long one. That's for sure. Rick, thank you so much. Yeah, for your, you yeah sorry, go ahead. I'll just say quickly. You mentioned Disney. Uh, the days are gone when Walt Disney could say because he ran the company, "I like this mouse." Everybody else doesn't like him, but I like this mouse named Mickey. I'm going to go with him. Uh, today's world, it's all a business. And if the committee doesn't like the mouse, there is no mouse. So, <laughs> yep, to your point, uh, it's going to change. It's the bane of our existence. Focus groups will do that to you somehow. In the old yep, days, you exactly. could pick a movie star based on talent, and, and a, maybe one person, as you say, you can say, we like that mouse, we're going to go with it. I'm not sure in a focus group world that would be the, 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 the case today, that's for sure. Rick, thank it's you. It's true. So, it's it, true. It is absolutely true. Rick, thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Jazz. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.